This is episode number 899 with number one New York Times bestselling author, Brene Brown. Welcome to the School of Greatness. My name is Lewis Howes, a former pro athlete turned lifestyle entrepreneur. And each week we bring you an inspiring person or message to help you discover how to unlock your inner greatness. Thanks for spending some time with me today. Now let the class begin. Martin Luther King Jr. said, I decided to stick with love. Hate is too great a burden to bear. And Mila Braun said, in order to heal, we must forgive. And sometimes the person we need to forgive is ourselves. Welcome to this special episode with Brene Brown. I had Brene Brown on a couple of years ago, and I wanted to bring this interview back because it's so powerful. And she had a recent book that came out that I feel like everyone should be checking out. And this interview really got vulnerable, got intimate for both of us. So I hope you enjoy this. Make sure to share it with your friends, lewishouse.com slash 899. And if you don't know who Brene is, she is a research professor at the University of Houston. But once her TED Talk blew up on the internet a few years ago, she has appeared on much bigger platforms around the world, including Oprah, the New York Times, and many others. And not only have her books changed millions of people's perspectives on what it actually means to be brave, authentic, and loved, she has started a conversation that has created a ripple effect among other thought leaders as well. Even The Rock is talking about how inspired he is by Brene Brown. And in this interview, we talk about what belonging truly means, what every parent needs to know about when their kids grow up how to support men in being willing to discuss vulnerable topics. This is powerful, especially around the work that I've done with my book, The Mask of Masculinity. Why people hold on to hate for so long. Why our avoidance of pain is causing so many huge issues in the world. And how to deal with shame because we can't get rid of it. I'm so excited about this one. Again, if you have a friend that you care about, make sure to share this with them. And ask them what they enjoy about this episode. We're trying to spread the message of Brene Brown as much as possible because the work she does is truly healing and transforming the world. And before we dive in, I want to let you guys know that we are launching our documentary. We've been working on a documentary for over a year and a half. It's coming out right now, very shortly, and we're giving it away for free. All you need to do is go to greatness.com. And check out the page, sign up for it when we release it here, coming out in a few weeks. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. So go to greatness.com. We're doing a movie premiere also in Los Angeles soon. So sign up to be notified about that and watch the documentary. We'd love to hear your thoughts. It's all about chasing greatness and discovering what greatness means to you. So go to greatness.com, sign up to be notified of when we launch that. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA. Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. 
Save big money on everything for your spring projects at Menards. We have all of your garden and landscaping essentials. Master Garden Premium Garden Soil contains a slow-release fertilizer that feeds gardens for up to nine months. It produces better results and is ready to use for all your gardening needs. Save big on Menards' great selection of garden and landscaping products. Compare brands in-store or online at Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. And without further ado, let's dive into this episode with the one and only Brene Brown. Welcome back, everyone, to the School of Greatness podcast. I'm very excited. Today, we have the incredible Brene Brown on. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks I really appreciate it. Yes, I'm very excited to be here. Uh, we have an event called the Summit of Greatness every year, an annual event. And the people on my team in our program write down the person that they want to have on the School of Greatness. And most of our team is women, and most of them put your name down as the people, the person we want to have on. So we're finally right. making it happen, and my team can stop asking for Brene. It's happening. And uh, I'm very excited about this because you have a new book out called Braving the Wilderness, The Quest for True Belonging and the Courage to Stand Alone. Make sure you guys get this book right now. It's going to change the game. Um, and I got a chance to go through it. Love everything that you, you write about in here. And I feel very connected to you. Yeah. Because I felt very alone for almost my entire life. I felt like I didn't belong anywhere. I was the youngest of four. I was always picked on, bullied. Uh, I was sexually abused when I was a kid by a man that I didn't know. I was always picked last on sports teams. And I know you weren't even picked for, I think it was the step team or some type of... Uh, oh, yeah, the drill game, team. The drill yeah. team. I remember how... Yeah. You know, that made that kind of transformed your life. It was defining. Defining, right? These moments that we go through as kids can really define and shape us. And so I'm just, I feel connected to you in that sense that I felt very alone and didn't know who I was for a very long time. And still I'm trying to learn who I am. Yeah, me and too. You are? Yeah. But you seem like you have it all figured out. Oh, God. No, I don't. No, I don't have it. I mean, first of all, I think... The one thing I've learned in my research above all else is that in the absence of love and belonging, there's always suffering. So mm. when I hear about your experiences growing up, that's suffering. Yeah. You know, that's real suffering. And for me, not making the drill team when I was, I think it was in eighth grade, by itself is not a lot. But how my family responded to it, it was like when things changed for me and I didn't feel like I belonged to my family anymore. So I think that... I still am trying to figure it out. I don't know. I don't know that I've inter- I don't know that I've interviewed anyone, even spiritual leaders, who have the belonging thing completely nailed. Because mm. I don't think it is what we think it is. You know, I don't think that it's having a big posse of friends, or having a crew, or rolling with a bunch of people. I think I'm still trying to figure it out because I still feel lonely and alone, and on the outside of things, on a really regular basis. Really. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're going on a book tour with thousands of people, yeah. a 15-city tour, yeah. millions of fans around the world, and you still feel alone. Yeah, I can feel really lonely. Why? And it's really hard because, you know, you talk about that book tour. I'm severely introverted. Yes. Super private. And so I love that connection between me and an audience, but it can also be hard on me. And also, I'm talking about things that no one... It's weird to me that people sign up to talk about them, but they're hard topics sometimes. And we laugh and we have fun and we'll sing. But um, I think what I've learned in doing the research on belonging 
is that belonging is being a part of something bigger than yourself, mm. but it's also the courage to stand alone and to belong to yourself above all else. And so I think I spend a lot of time belonging to myself and sometimes that makes other people uncomfortable. Mm. And so I think that's hard. I think I do feel, I'm always looking for, I don't know about you, but I'm always looking for the roadmap. Like I wanna find the researcher, storyteller, Christian, lover of all people, fighter of the resistance. I wanna find the blueprint of who's ahead of me believing what I believe in and doing it really well. Mm-hmm. But there's not really a blueprint sometimes. From, you know, like We're all event. trying to figure it out. Yeah. We're all trying to figure yeah. it out. I don't get to copy anybody. And so it's hard. Yeah. It's still hard. But here's a thing that has changed everything for me. I belong to me. So even when I feel alone and I wonder like who's my crew and who are my people, um, I belong to me for sure mm-hmm. for the first time in my life maybe. Yeah, and I think we lose ourselves sometimes by trying to belong in groups that we don't fit in. Yeah. You know, I remember being in, you know, the youngest on these sports teams growing up. I was playing on the junior varsity as a freshman or the varsity or whatever. So yeah. I was the youngest, and I remember just wanting to fit in, just yeah. like you did in the, yeah. uh, that team. And I wanted to fit in. I wanted to feel like they liked me, like I mattered, yeah. like I was the cool kid or whatever. Yeah. And when they would do things that I didn't really agree with or they would bully other kids or make fun of people, it's like, I didn't want to not say anything. You know, I didn't want to stand against them because I wanted no. to belong. Yeah. So if I did stand up against them, then that means I was alone. And that was my biggest fear, was being alone. No, yeah, because that's what, that's what teams and groups deliver. Mm-hmm. They deliver this thing that you're not alone. Yeah. The problem is there's just, I was so shocked to learn in the research that the opposite of belonging is fitting in. Because fitting in is assessing a group of huh. people and thinking, who do I need to be? What do I need to say? What do I need to wear? How do I need to act? And changing who you are. And true belonging never asks us to change who we are. It demands that we be who we are. Because if we, if we, be, if we fit in because how we've changed ourselves, that's not belonging. That's not belonging because you betrayed yourself for other people. Mm. And that's not sustainable. Yeah, you start to lose yourself. You start to lose yourself, exactly what you said. And so I think it's hard. You have to show up as who you are. How do we find out who we are? That's the life's work, right? That's <laughs> freaking hard. Um, you do just you keep... know who you are? Uh, yeah, I do. Who are you? <laughs> uh, in what way? If, if someone just said, who are you, Brene, what would you say? Uh, Brene Brown. Mm. Mom, partner, researcher, storyteller, Texan. I don't know. I ask them how much time they have. Mm. Because, you know, the thing is that we want to, when we ask people who they are and we want to know, we'd like those really easy files to put them in. But I'm a complicated person. Are you? Yeah. And so I think I know who I am. What makes you complicated? I don't know if I'm complicated, but I'm complex. Mm. Um, You're interesting. I hope so. <laughs> very <laughs> some interesting. Days, yeah, some days no. Very you know, interesting. I think what makes me complex is I think what makes everyone complex mm. is the paradoxical nature of people. Mm-hmm. So you know, like I speak in public. I love doing that, but I'm but incredibly introverted. introverted. Yeah. Um, I'm kind of a traditionalist around things. Yeah. Um, my kids say yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. 
but I also raise them to challenge authority every time they get the opportunity to do that, mm. but to be really polite when they're doing sure, it. Sure, sure. Yeah. So I think I'm, um, I'm unapologetically earnest. Mm. Like I believe in the goodness of people, but I believe it's hard work to stay out of fear and stay good. Yeah. And so I think I understand people. I think I have a lot of empathy, but I'm also not afraid of discomfort. Yeah. So I think there's just a lot of push and pull. Sure. And I think that's true of all of us. I do not like to be defined. Mm. I think that's- Do some, you? I, I was gonna say, I feel like my entire life, I didn't wanna be defined as well. They were yeah. like, you're gonna be this jock in college. Right. You're gonna be like this alcoholic. Yeah. You're gonna be in the frats. Yeah. All my siblings said this to me. And I was like, no, I'm not. I made a bet with each one of my siblings, $100 each, that I wouldn't have one sip of alcohol in college. Because I was like, I'm gonna go against everything you think I'm gonna be. Yeah. I joined uh, the school musical because they were like, you're just gonna do sports. I sang, I played guitar, I salsa dance. I was like, I'm gonna do everything different than what people would expect of a tall, white man, right? That's awesome. I was like, I wanna be different. Yeah. And I think in that process, I was like trying to discover who I really was, what I liked, my yeah. dreams, what, you know, what was fun for me. Yeah. Uh, as opposed to just trying to fit the box and the mold of everyone right. else. Because you can lose yourself in that fitting in, I think. You can lose yourself in the fitting in and you can lose yourself in the rebuttal to the fitting in. It's true. Trying to go against it all yeah. true, yeah. Yeah, it's really hard. I mean, it's this thing that, it's a, it's a quote that is, Braving the Wilderness is all about this, starts with this quote from Maya Angelou that you're, we're never free until we belong nowhere, which, we belong everywhere, which is nowhere, which is no place at all which I thought was a terrible quote for many years. <laughs> and I was like, why are you saying that, Dr. Angelo? You're pissing me off. Yeah. Um, but then I realized really, the, and she says, the, the cost is high, but the reward is great. And I think, I think that's the thing, that I feel like I belong everywhere I go, no, no matter where it is or who I'm with, as long as I never betray myself. Mm. And the minute I become who you want me to be in order to fit in and make sure people like me is the moment I no longer belong anywhere. Mm. And that is hard. Yeah. I mean, that's hard. a hard practice. That's an everyday practice. Wow. Yeah, because I can, I can be whoever you want me to be like that. You're like a chameleon, you said. Oh, I can be totally like a chameleon. Like sometimes it's really funny because like I always, because I travel so much, I have all these miles. I always sit in business class and I'm normally the, the only woman in business class. Uh -huh. um, every now and then there's one other maybe, which is a conversation we should be having too. <laughs> sure. Um, but it doesn't matter what dude sits next to me. Like I can talk about whatever that person like. And it's so funny because we'll talk about sports usually first, or football, or we'll talk about politics, and he'll say, what do you do? Mm -hmm. And I'll say, I study vulnerability and shame. Oh, well, huh, well, I'm gonna play some Angry Birds, uh, <laughs> you know, and right that moment, like, I can right. just, and it's, it's not that I know everything about everything, it's just. So you're saying most men don't wanna chime in and, and learn more about that? No, that's usually, if I wanna go to sleep, I'm like, I'm a shame researcher, what do you do? <laughs> you're like, okay. Right, um, right. But I think I can be anything. Like, mm -hmm. yeah, you're adaptable. I'm yeah. adaptable, and yeah. adaptable is great because anyone that comes to my home or here to work, I can make you feel comfortable. Of course. But then, if I get so adaptable that my goal, my intention of adapting, is to make sure you like me, mm -hmm. then that's when I betray myself. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What would you say is the time in your life you've been the most alone? High school. It's the whole journey. 
Yeah, it just sucked. It does suck. It does. And you know, my daughter just graduated from high school <laughs> and she had this amazing experience. Mm. You know, just, just incredible experience. And um, it was so healing to watch. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, and I think it happened because she, I think she had the confidence to put herself out there and, she, you know, student council president and, the, you know, that kind. I think because we have a rule at our house that no matter what, you belong here. Mm. No matter how goofy, awkward, afraid, wrong, it doesn't matter. You belong here. And so I think when we give our kids a platform like that at home, it gives them the courage to take risks outside of home. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Because they feel safe coming back. No matter yeah. what happens, they yeah. always have a place to come home to. Yeah. And I grew up in a house where it was very chaotic. I'm the oldest of four. And fitting in and being cool was the most important thing. So I think without that pressure, I probably would have never tried out for that drill team. Um, but in, mm-hmm. in, my, in my world growing up, you only did two things. You were a cheerleader or you were on the drill team. And preferably you married a running back or a quarterback. I mean, right. that was the way it went. Right. Um, and so for me, I probably would have been like president of the French club. You know, or I would have been in debate or those kind of the things. Newspaper. Or, yeah, yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Photographer of the yearbook. Yeah. Um, but those things did not have a lot of value. Really? Not, no. Your parents didn't instill that as something credible or worthwhile? No, it's just I, cool was the number one mm. value at home. Cool, lots of friends, popular. Yeah. And that just wasn't my, I wasn't that thing. Mm. You know, I was, yeah, I wasn't. And so what I did is I just started drinking, smoking weed, hanging out with, you know, I found, I found a place to be, you know, cool. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that just goes bad fast. Yeah. Yeah. Have you ever had a conversation with your parents about this? Oh yeah. We've talked about all of it. You have? Yeah. You've let it go. You've processed it all. Or... Oh yeah. Cause they, you know, they read my books as uh-huh. I write them and they're, sure. you know, they're like, shit, this is exactly what every parent wants a child <laughs> who grows up to be a shame researcher. Um, right. but no, they just, that's the miracle of my parents. Like my parents, they've taught me the best thing about parenting that anyone I think could ever know, which is it doesn't end when your kids leave. Mm. Like they keep growing and exploring and um, learn, you know, and however hard it was for me not being able to be, vul- you know, we did not do vulnerability growing up. Really? No, 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 no. Like, yeah, like our family motto was literally lock and load. Mm. Like get ready, you know, family trips, you're in the car for five hours. That's all six of us. You really have to go to the bathroom, but the rest stop is on the other side of the highway. We're not pulling over. Like, hold suck it, it up. Hold yeah. it. Like, we were tough. We were tough. Mm. Like, we'd fall down and get hurt. You know, my dad would say, like, I got bigger scratches than that on my eyeball. You know, like, <laughs> right, you know, right. yeah, like, we were tough. And so, mm. and, we were, and we were taught to outrun vulnerability. We were taught to suck it up, soldier yeah. on, get her done. Yeah. And so however hard that was for me growing up, imagine what it was like for my parents in the 50s. Mm. You know, my dad, who was the youngest of six, his dad died when he was 16, you know. um, Was he able to process that or no? No, he just did the next thing you do. Played football, played college ball. Um, My mom, who's my grandmother, who I named my daughter after, was an alcoholic. And she was drunk every other day of my mom's life. Wow. But she was the most amazing person in the world. But everyone knew she was an alcoholic. So my mom wasn't allowed to have friends at, our, at her house growing up because it was the 50s and she was mm. divorced. You know, and so my mom became 
the head of the drill team and the, the, you know, the valedictorian. And, and so however hard it was for me growing up having to try to outrun vulnerability, it was a million times harder on my parents. Yeah. And they, didn't, they did what they knew how to do. And they loved us as much as they could love us with the tools they had. And so I don't have, I think the hard part comes from people that I've interviewed my whole life where the parents don't grow and change. And they yeah. see anything a child trying to do differently as criticism of what they did, as opposed to my parents who lean in and say, tell me more about that. Mm. Tell, I have a funny story. We hear a funny story about sure. my dad. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's great. So we do a lot of choice theory with my daughter and my son. And so choice, my husband's a pediatrician. Okay. So like we, we know a lot about child development from our, just from school. Right. And so when, our, when Ellen was little, we used to do this thing where we would say, um, you know, you have two choices. Like, Lewis, you have two choices. You can either hand me the water, I'm gonna have to take it from you. What uh -huh. is your choice? So that if you decide not to hand it to me and I have to take it, it's not my choice. fault. That, that was, was your choice, choice. Yeah, right. Yeah. And so one, one night I was talking to Ellen and we were in my dad's house in San Antonio and I was like, Ellie, you need to turn off Dora the Explorer. It's time to go to bed. And she's like, mm-mm. And I said, Ellen, you have two choices. You can get up and turn off the TV or I'm gonna get it up and turn it off for you. And if I have to get up and you know, turn off the TV, you're going to lose privileges to watch it tomorrow. And that's your choice. Uh, yeah, that's your choice. So yeah. do you, you know, and I would hate that for you, but mm -hmm. that will be your choice. And my dad was sitting in the recliner next to me and he's like, ah, damn, sis, what are you raising, a hostage negotiator? <laughs> and I was like, dad, and he's like, seriously, Brene, we had four of y'all, we didn't have time for that. Yeah. So the next day I come home, I'm visiting friends in San Antonio and he's watching Ellen and he's in the driveway. It's like 110 degrees in San Antonio and he's sweating. He's like, Ellen. You have two choices. You can either put the bicycle up or I'm going to have to put it up for you. And the second one's a dumbass choice. So I was like, wow, you're so close. You're getting there. <laughs> but you're getting there. But you're getting there. My parents are amazing in that way that like they're learning and changing. So yeah, yeah. I think it's harder when parents say, I'm done. What you got was what you got. Mm -hmm. No apologies. No change. Take no amends. Take it or leave it. Yeah. And if you do it differently with your own kids, you're a sucker. Wow. And I think we see that a lot. Yeah, we do. One of my favorite parts about my job is that I get the opportunity to travel a lot. And in fact, I'm recording this right now while I'm in Mexico. And actually, I was thinking about something that I wanted to share because I get a lot of questions from so many people about different side hustle ideas. So here's one for those of you out there that are on the go a lot like I am or traveling a lot. When you're staying in your Airbnb on your trips, have you ever thought about how you could be making extra money by hosting through Airbnb while your home is vacant? If you're interested in an extra stream of income, Airbnb hosting is an easy place to start and it's like giving your home some company while you're away. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I mean, what should parents be learning about how they can grow? I mean, how can they start to be aware? Because I think it starts with being aware yeah, for sure. of what they know and what they don't know and being receptive to learning something different, which is really hard to do. I think it's once hard. you've had these habits for so long. Uh, so that's the first thing. And I want to dive into the lack of vulnerability with what's happening in Charlottesville right now as well, because yeah. I know you did something on that this morning. So I guess how can parents listen to this and be aware and be willing to move forward in a different way of learning something new when they're so stuck in their ways, potentially, that it's worked for them to this point to get to where they're at? You know, I think I believe this with my, my whole heart. Mm -hmm. I believe 
that 99.9% .9 of parents are truly waking up every day and doing the very best they can with what they have. Yeah. Um, I don't think there are a lot of parents who wake up and maliciously try to screw up their kids or hurt their kids or belittle or shame their kids. Um, I think we're doing the best we can with what we have. And so I think to let go of the idea that if I have done something that I could have done better or that I could learn from, that I have to just come down. People defend their parenting mm -hmm. like they're defending their lives because it's such a shame minefield. Yeah. You know, I mean, a great example is the work you're doing around men and vulnerability. Mm -hmm. I cannot tell you the number of fathers and the hundreds, if not thousands of fathers I've interviewed that said, I shamed my son every time he was vulnerable. Yeah. I put him down. I made fun of them. I hit him every time he was vulnerable. And now I look back and I know it's because that's the way I was raised or I was afraid he'd be soft and get hurt at school or, you know, whatever the thing is. And so I think for parents, it's about understanding, giving yourself permission to not have been, I'm not perfect. Like, you know, like I've never not been a researcher and a parent. My husband's yeah. a pediatrician. Our kids will be in therapy. <laughs> <You're> right. <laughs> and the reason why I think that'll be so successful is there's only two kind of kids you raise, kids who will ask for help when they need it or kids who won't. And that's as good as it gets, is to raise a kid who'll ask for help. Yeah, I never asked for help. Yeah. I was always suffering inside. Yeah, right. And I always felt shameful, guilty. Right. And I just, my way of asking was being angry, resentful, mad, hitting people in sports yeah. or outside of sports because that's all I knew. I'll tell you a story about a guy that, inter that I interviewed, very, one of the first men I interviewed when I went from interviewing all women to men, was a guy who said, I said, what is shame for you? And he used the P-U-S-S-Y word, mm -hmm. which is like just synonymous with shame in male culture, yeah. right? Yeah. And he said, I'll never forget the day that changed my life. He said, I was at football practice. I was a freshman in high school. And he said, the coach yelled, get on the line. And I didn't want to get on the line, the line of scrimmage, yeah. in case people don't know. I know you know, but <laughs> he asked me to make sure I walked through all the sports metaphors with him now. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, and he said, I was afraid to get on the line because I know, you know, it's where people crash into each other. Mm -hmm. And so I must have had fear on my face because my coach looked at me and said, don't be a P-U-S-S-Y, get on the line. Mm -hmm. And he said, that's the day that I learned that the way you deal with that is you change that fear into rage. And he said, and I just plowed over the guy across mm. from me. And then he said, then I spent the next 20 years plowing over my wife, mm. my children, my colleagues, the right. people who worked for me. Yeah. He said, that's what I did with my fear. Yeah. I mean, I can definitely relate. Yeah. I mean, I remember being picked last on a, on a team once when it was a co-ed sport. We were playing dodgeball on the playground. I think it was third or fourth grade. And there was two captains, two guys. And they were picking one at a yeah. time, right? Oh, and they God, pick, they, brutal. They pick all the guys. Yeah. And then I'm like, okay, I'm going to be the last guy chosen. Yeah. But then they go and pick all the girls. And then they don't even pick my name. I'm just by default the last picker's team. And so as a, as a, you know, a boy trying to fit in in third, fourth grade, it was devastating. And I told myself in that moment, I was like, never again will I be picked last at any sport. I'll do whatever it takes. I am going to be a machine. I'm going to train for six hours a night. I'm going to, you know, take no prisoners mentality and yeah. just... I mean, I dominated on that dodgeball game that day. I was just like throwing the ball, like just diving everywhere. I was like, never again. You know, did you ever get picked last again? Never got picked last again. Right. But, uh, and it helped me achieve, you know, 
was all state in multiple sports, was all American in two sports, I broke world records, I played professional football, I play on the USA handball team now. And it guided me towards achieving these things, but it left me feeling very unfulfilled every yeah. time I'd achieve them. Or anytime we lose, it was like an attack on my life. Every loss we ever had in a, in a sport, it was like my life was at stake. And I felt like I was worthless. Because if I didn't win, yeah. that meant no one was gonna accept me, yeah. or I wasn't good enough, yeah. or I was gonna be picked last or right. something. So I would take it so personally when I wouldn't win. And then I would take it out of my family, my girlfriends, my friends, like yeah. everything. And I didn't know how to communicate. And I'm still learning, you know, I'm still yeah, imperfect right. every day, but it's like, I wasn't even aware. There was never information about how to connect or how to communicate and feel like it was okay or you're allowed to. Because anytime you try to talk about any vulnerabilities as a guy growing up for me, it was like, you're a P-U-S-S-Y. Yeah. Or don't be a little girl. Or yeah. don't be a B-I-T-C-H. Yeah. You know, all these things. Yeah. And so it's very, I think it's very hard for me and especially for a lot of men who grew up to stand alone and feel like they belong in an isolated world if they're not going to join a group that's going to make fun of them or put other people down. So how do we stand alone when we're not introverted or where we want to be around other people? How do we, and how can men communicate better or feel like it's okay to be vulnerable? Yeah. Because we were talking before about how, you know, most men that I know played sports with would never watch the power of vulnerability, TED Talk, or they would never read uh, you know, books from you or Oprah that I'm aware of because they would talk bad about you know, female leaders trying to talk about vulnerability. Yeah. You know? um, they would say, that's soft, that's weak. Yeah. You know, I don't watch that stuff, I don't read that stuff. When really that's the stuff we need the most, in my opinion. And I think it's changing. I think I told you earlier yes, that is. I think 50% of the readers of Daring Greatly are men, and, yep. 50, and the vast majority of leaders who bring me into organizations are, are men. men. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you why. Wise man. I can, uh, <laughs> I hope, um, I can flip it for you on a dime. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it used to take me when men, when men would say, this is how the call would go. Hey, we'd love for you to come in and work with our leadership team. Um, we saw your TED talk. We thought it was great. <laughs> um, are you available? And I'd say, sure. What do you want me to talk about? And they'd say, anything but vulnerability and shame. And I would say. Why? Yeah. So what do you want me to talk about if I don't talk about vulnerability? <laughs> and they'd say courage. And then I'd say, okay. Then I would try to spend like a half an hour mm -hmm. explaining the relationship between vulnerability and courage. Yeah. Because all men want to be brave. Isn't vulnerability courage? Vulnerability is courage. So I only Isn't have to ask. Isn't vulnerability power? Yes. I have to ask one <laughs> question to flip the whole thing. It's this. Vulnerability is defined as uncertainty, risk, and emotional exposure. Can you name one act of courage that you've ever been involved in or that you've ever even witnessed that did not involve uncertainty, risk, and emotional exposure? And it's a loaded question because I know the answer is no. Mm -hmm. Because I've asked it thousands and thousands. I've, I've stood in front of Navy SEALs and Special Forces military personnel and said, give me an example. I want you to try hard to give me an example of courage that didn't require vulnerability. And in 10 years, I've never had a single person be able to come up. I've even had two guys come up to me who were in the military that said, we're going to think about it and get with you. They and never I said, got back oh to my you. God, I said, do it. I would love it. Mm -hmm. Give me an example of courage, even on the field, mm -hmm. that doesn't involve vulnerability. Like if you, if, it, if you think you're being brave and it doesn't involve risk or uncertainty, you're not being that brave. Mm -hmm. If it's you too know safe. How it's, yeah, if you know yeah. how it's going to turn out, it's not courage. Mm -hmm. And so in that moment, people go, shit. But I want to be brave and I don't want to be vulnerable. 
And I'm like, therein lies the great <laughs> dilemma of our time. Right, right. Yeah. No one wants to be uncomfortable. Mm. No one wants to be vulnerable and everyone wants to be brave. And it just doesn't work like that. Right. And anytime we try something new, we've got we've to be uncomfortable. It's vulnerable. Yeah, it's vulnerable. Yeah. I mean, when I ask people, what is vulnerability? People would say, initiating sex with my wife. Uh, sending my child out the door who thinks he's going to make the first chair in orchestra and knowing he's probably not going to make the orchestra at all. Mm. Uh, getting fired. Starting my own business. Um, saying I love you first in a relationship. Trying to get pregnant after my first miscarriage. Mm. I mean, like, vulnerability is... It's uncertainty. It's not knowing, but doing it anyway because it's the brave thing to do. And so the problem is, I think, that the greatest shame trigger for men is do not be perceived as weak. And in our culture, yes. we believe that vulnerability is weakness. So you don't have to skip too many steps before you go, hey, it's shaming to be vulnerable. And so men do two things in the face of shame. Pissed off or shut down. Mm -hmm. Put on a mask. Put on a mask. Yeah. And so what we're learning and what people are starting to see very quickly is you cannot be a courageous leader if you're not vulnerable, if you're not willing to have hard, uncomfortable conversations, give hard feedback, receive hard feedback, excavate issues like Charlottesville that no one wants to talk about, mm -hmm. like discomfort is the great enemy of courage. Like my motto is, we say it here all the time, choose courage over comfort, because you can't have both. Mm. And if you think you're being brave and you're super comfortable, you're not being that brave. Is there an area of your life right now where you don't feel you're courageous enough? Or something you've been wanting to say to people that you haven't said fully or holding back on? I think on? the Charlottesville Facebook Live today yeah. was hard. Was it? Yeah. It, oh, yes. I was. My voice was shaking. I really? was shaking. In fact, we got here today and we knew we were going to film us together, but we were going to film some other stuff first. And I said, I just need to do the Facebook Live wow. because I don't want to lose my courage. Yeah. And I think that's hard because when you're when you talk about race and privilege mm -hmm. and power, first of all, you're, I'm going to get like, you know, death threats and people are going to say, you know, all that stuff. You're wrong either way. You're no wrong either way. Right. Yeah. Um, but the, the ability that I have to opt out of speaking out about it because it doesn't supposedly affect me is mm -hmm. the definition of privilege. Mm -hmm. So I don't believe we can opt out of it. Yeah. And I know that I'm white, upper middle class, really educated, Judeo-Christian, straight. I know that I've got blinders on that no matter how hard I work, I will say something that is not right. Mm -hmm. And it will, people will come back and they will fire off against me around it and it will hurt, but I'd rather take the chance and it hurting and learning. But it's always, it's scary to talk about this stuff today. It, it's, Do you think? I think? It's really hard. And I try to come from a place of like super authentic and loving of all humanity all the time. Yeah. You know, I was raised by you know, I had two great parents, but my mom and two older sisters were really the ones who came back to me after they would go on a date with a guy. They'd be like, Lewis, never do this on a date. You yeah. know, always treat women this way. So yeah. I've always tried my best. Yeah. You know, I'm imperfect in so many ways and constantly make mistakes with people. Yeah, me too. But most of my team, I was telling you before, most of my team is women. I think 80% of my team is women. And Clearly they get... Why they you're get, successful. Well, they, and they get paid more than the men on my team. <laughs> not because... They're women, but because they produce better results. 
and I, my, my business is based on results. Yeah. I've got people of different ethnicities, I've got people of different sexual orientations. And I had someone tell me last week, they said, you know, white male privilege is a thing and I think you need to incorporate more values into your organization so that you're not living from this white male privilege place. And I was thinking, my, I was hurt by this because I get it, I'm white, I can't, there's nothing I can do based on the way I was born. There's nothing I can do. Right. I can't change the way no. how I was born, but I can choose to determine how I want to live and right. how I want to show up in the world. Right. So I'm constantly trying to be mindful of speaking out more. Yeah. Of Because I think that's what um, a lot of my friends are saying about Charlottesville. If, if white men aren't opening up and talking about this more, it's not going to come across to the people that are, I guess, marching with torches, which is, just blows my mind that this is happening still. It blows me away that this is happening. I don't even understand it. I'm like... I'm blown away, I don't know. And I'm just like, how can I be a better, uh, more impactful in this place? And how can we get rid of this? How can we end it? I'm... Yeah, I <laughs> do you have the yeah, answer? No, I don't know. Yeah, oh, yeah. It um, just blows my mind. No, and I think we need to do a lot more listening than, you know, and hear what, hear from the people who've been affected by this the longest. I think we do need to speak out. I think white silence around these issues is mm-hmm. death. I mean, I just think it's, it's, it's terrible. I don't think we can come in and save the day. I think we need to come in and with humility and curiosity and say, this is what I think and I want to learn and I want to, if I make mistakes, let me know and I'll try to make them better. Yeah. Um, and I think we need to take responsibility. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it's easier sometimes for me in my life to just keep asking questions, just keep reading, just keep, just keep talking about it. Um, and when I am so uncomfortable that I don't want to do it anymore, just to keep doing it because to remember <laughs> that my discomfort is, you know, that's my privilege. Yeah. And so I don't know that there's an answer other than discussions. And I'm not, I wasn't surprised about Charlottesville really. No. I just, really, it just blows my mind. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'm just ignorant to that. I don't, I don't think it's about being ignorant to it. It doesn't. You know, I've studied shame for 15 years and fear. Like, that's what it looks like. Yeah. What do you think they're, these individuals marching like this are most shameful of in their own life? Why are I would, they so uh, I would never venture to guess. You know I, mean? um, I, I don't know, but I do think it's about powerlessness. They feel powerless. Yeah, and I think that people go, oh, my God, okay, so the white, you know, the white guy in the khakis and the, you know, fancy polo shirt feels powerless and, you know, cry me a river. Um, I think we don't, we don't give a shit about that at our own peril. Mm -hmm. Um, Not caring about it and not trying to understand it. I'm not taking it on my load for sure. I mean, I'm not going to add it to my back. I got other stuff to do, Um, but I am going to try to understand it because I can't imagine a way through what needs to happen over the next decade that does not involve understanding pain. There's this incredible James Baldwin quote that says, now I understand why people hold on to their hate so stubbornly, because once they let it go, there's nothing but pain. Um, And I think we we dismiss and don't care about that pain at our own peril, Um, because pain will make itself known. It will not be dismissed. It's not an affect or an emotion that dissipates 
when it's ignored. Yeah. Well, I think this is, this is fascinating you're saying this because I never wanted to feel the emotional pain. It was so hard to go through. Yeah. I got a, a breakup with a girlfriend. Like, I didn't know how to deal with the emotional loss. Yeah. Of any type of pain or suffering yeah. as a man. And I remember being in the fetal position my freshman year in college for days, sobbing in my dorm room, just curled up in a ball uh, because I, you know, a relationship ended and I was so sad to be alone and I didn't have this person in my life anymore. And I would take it out on the football field. Oh, I yeah. was like, I don't want to feel this type of emotional pain, yeah. so how can I inflict as much physical pain on myself and other people yeah. to get it out? And it's hard to switch that off and just be like this loving, vulnerable man after you're on the football field, like inflicting pain uh, on other people because you're supposed to. No, and I think whether we play football or not, we're much yeah. better at causing pain than we are yeah. feeling pain. It's, you don't want to feel it. No, you don't. And so we cause it and we hurt other people. Yeah, we do. And so, and if you look at leadership, whether you're in an organization leading a country, leading a family as a parent, one of the cheapest, easiest ways to lead is to give people someone to hate and blame for your own, your misery. Mm. Um, and so we have to really watch that in our country right now. Yeah. So if we, all you have to do when people are, are in uncertainty and fear is give them someone to blame and give them a reason to blame them yeah. and then step back and watch everything just fall apart. And so I think that's happening right now in our country. Mm. And so we have to push away the rhetoric you know, we have to own our pain. And let me tell you, it's not like you tell that story about the football field and it's so prophetic because every crisis we're up against right now, almost without exception, is about our inability, our unwillingness to deal with pain. If you look at the opioid addiction right now across, you know, somewhere beginning with physicians, sent the message, there's no reason for you to hurt at all. Mm. Here's a pain reliever. Here's a pain reliever. You know, and things are not going well in your life. Well, here's a way to discharge hate and pain that'll make you feel better. Like, like yeah, by we, drinking or by, by drink, smoking I mean, or we're the sex most, or drug, yeah. whatever. Medicated, addicted, in debt, and obese Americans in history. Mm -hmm. Like, our tolerance for discomfort is zero. Soft. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah, so here's the irony. Soft. So our what tolerance, we're taught in football, yeah, don't be soft. Don't be soft. So it's actually our inability to be vulnerable yeah. that makes us weak. Yeah, I agree. I, one of the things that I talk about and try to express to as many people as possible is to actually put yourself through pain and discomfort every single day. I try to do this physically through working out to try to push myself farther than I want to where I'm like emotionally want to cry. Yeah. Because I, I, I just know by conditioning myself to feel pain every single day that when a lot of stuff comes my way, I'm capable of taking it on and processing the emotions as opposed to being like, I just need a drink. I need this. Right. I need that. Right. I mean, I've never been drunk in my life, so I don't even know what that feels like. But it's hard, especially as for myself, I'll speak for myself as a man, it's hard growing up learning how to deal with those type of emotions. It's really challenging. There's no class in school that says, okay, when you're feeling this way, Lewis, here's how you're supposed to act. It's in vulnerability. The world. Yeah, here's how you're supposed to yeah. act. Here's the step by step yeah. process. Like, there's no process that we're taught unless it's our parents or we seek it out. And it's not modeled because I think parents fear 
kind of soft boys yeah. turning into soft men. Yeah. Who, you know, I remember interviewing this guy who was in his 70s, and I said, what is shame to you? And he's like, shame is being the kid you can shove up against the lockers. Yeah. Yeah. Shame is being the kid that you shove up? Yeah, being yeah. the kid that you can shove up against the lockers. Yeah, yeah. You know, and it's like, but really... We've got to shift it, and we've got to shift it. I think it starts parenting, school. Mm-hmm. Athletics is huge. Huge. I mean, it's a really – I mean, let me, let me, let me do this. You're, okay, let's, let's do the sports thing. Let's do it. Okay, ready? Okay. Two football teams. Mm-hmm. You're going to place a bet. Okay. Both of them have hurt quarterbacks. Mm. Yep. Both of them are playing – well, both of them have hurt quarterbacks. This team over here recognizes its vulnerability – and it's going to put in a second-stream quarterback. This team ignores its vulnerability and pretends like it doesn't exist. Who are you betting on? Hmm. Depends on the injury. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> the football team. Hey, because I played hurt my whole life, you know, so yeah, it depends. Yeah, I would say that most of us would say you are more – you are less likely to win if you do not acknowledge your vulnerabilities right, as. Right, right. So even if you play your quarterback, right. you got to make sure your line is ready. Exactly. And you got to switch the plays up. Right. If and his you, arm's right. hurt, you're going right. to pass it off. You're going to pass do off. Less right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So Give him more time in the hole. Whatever the, you're going to do. The team that acknowledges their vulnerabilities. Is going to be more successful. And is adaptable right. to change. Right. Is going to be more successful. Right. Yes. Right. So why do we think, as men, mm. to pretend like you're not vulnerable makes you the most vulnerable? Yeah. Makes you the most susceptible. I mean, we just have data, data. I mean, just like I could fill this whole room with data about mm. you don't get to opt out. Let me ask you this. Do you know a guy in the world, you know a lot of guys, right, mm-hmm. who can say I've existed at this point in my life without being uncertain, at risk, or emotionally exposed? No. Right. You yeah. can't not yeah. do vulnerability. <laughs> yeah. But you can pretend like you don't. Then you're not making choices over the behaviors you engage in when you're vulnerable. Yeah. Then you don't know when you're vulnerable, and then you're acting nutty. And I think you pay major prices. Oh, yeah. When you don't, when you aren't aware or when you're not acting like you're aware. Yeah. You just act like everything's fine or you don't need help, you don't need support, you don't need to address a situation or yeah. grieve or whatever it is. No. That's when you get hurt the most. It's when you get hurt the most. It's when you suffer the most, and I think that's when the most... Anger, frustration, range, rage, rage and um, uh, I guess diversion happens. And I was watching this video last night where they were documenting the whole process of the Charlottesville thing. I think Vice was doing this. And the person interviewing like the leader, one of the guys who was like the leader of the marches or whatever, was saying about how, you know, this is our land and our forefathers were whites and it belongs to us. It's like this whole thing that it belongs to yeah. a certain race or something. It's, I can't, it just blows my mind. It's like... Forgetting clearly about the Native Americans who were here, <laughs> who were here. before yeah. we took it. Right, exactly. But I mean, it just blows my mind that um, all this comes back to like feeling like we need to belong, I guess, to all, it, and protect what was ours or what's our right or something. It all comes back to identity and belonging. Belonging, yeah. But, it, but underneath identity and belonging, there's something that we don't talk about and it comes, it comes down to power. It comes down to power. I mean, I think what we're witnessing is power over his last stand. And that's what I love. You you write about how I think most men who come from this place feel like power is only one person and one group can have the power as opposed to we can spread the power throughout the world. Like it's a pepperoni pizza. Right. Like if I give Lewis a little 
power, uh-huh. I'm gonna have less, so make sure I'm comfortable giving it to you. Right. When it's not. Don't give any slices away. Don't give slices away, hold all the, and so what we see around the world right now, not just with this administration, but globally, is we see the concept of power over making a last stand. And, and, it, and it is not going to work. What is going to work moving forward with the completely devastatingly difficult problems we have at hand is power with and power to, power with each other, collective power. The things that are killing us right now, we're not going to solve by ourselves as a nation. They're global issues, we need global solutions, we need everyone at the table for them. But that is a really, I mean, we are at a huge turning point in history Mm -hmm. that should not be minimized or misunderstood. I mean, for the first time ever, the problems that challenge us, us challenge us the, the most are problems that will not be solved with national solutions. They are global problems that require global solutions and collaboration. And for a lot of people, that's really scary. Hard. 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 What about us? What about mm-hmm. me? You know, um, and last stands, you know about last stands. Mm-hmm. Last stands are violent. Last, last dance are fueled by desperation. Whatever it takes. And fear and whatever it takes. And risking what, it all. Risking it all. And so what you're seeing right now are people risking it all. Showing up at these marches with freaking tiki torches. <laughs> I mean, like, it's not even start around the Polynesian, how right. the Polynesian people feel about their tiki torches. Right, but right. I mean, like, with tiki torches, basically, basically mimicking the Ku Klux Klan it's so crazy. But without sheets, this is, la- this is power over his last stand. And these folks are nostalgic for a time that never existed. Where they thought they had the power. Where they, yeah, they're, what they're interested in is it was so much better back then. And what they're not saying is when people knew their place. And so it's going to get harder. Mm. If you had a message to give to our nation's leader, what would you say? Roosevelt said that the president's, the presidency above all else is a place for moral leadership. And I believe there are lines that we do not cross, their morality lines etched in dignity about people's inherent worth, and we should never cross those lines. And they have been crossed so many times around immigration, around Mm -hmm. women, around building walls, and that at the very least, we can can argue about policy, we can argue about whether, you know, social security lockboxes or what should we do around taxation, healthcare, those are important things. But at the very least, a person in that office should be a moral leader. And that line should never be crossed. Mm -hmm. Because when you cross it, it says so much more about your integrity than it does about the people you're attacking. Yeah, yeah. If you had a, uh, a microphone and everyone had headphones on, was listening to the end of this microphone, and you got a message to share to all the men in the world within 60 seconds or less, and all the men were going to put on headphones and hear a message from mm. you. It's very Orwellian. I like it. <laughs> and you got one chance to say something to these men from all over the world, and they could all understand English, and mm-hmm. they understood you. You're taking care of all the logistics All the logistics, they got it on. The, it's not fuzzy, there's no Wi-Fi signal. It's all, everyone's got access mm-hmm. to hearing your voice. 
for 60 seconds. All the men, and all the women are actually standing by listening as well. What would you say to all the men of the world in general? Golly. Um, you know, I wouldn't want to screw that up. Mm. Let me think. Um, yeah. I think I would say that vulnerability is not weakness. It's about the willingness to show up and be seen when you can't control the outcome. And it is actually our greatest measure of courage. So show up in an authentic way and let us see your hearts because we know how lonely you actually are. Mm, wow. Yeah, men are lonely. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's, it's really, men are lonely, it's really hard. Yeah. Um, but I, I would not, I think that's, I don't think I would say anything differently to women as e either. Mm -hmm. You know, because I think there is certainly, you know, for women the greatest shame trigger is do it all, do it perfectly, and never let them see you sweat, look perfect, work perfect. In all perfect. areas. In all the areas. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, be smoking hot and yeah. brilliant and this, but don't ever look like you're putting any effort toward it. And so. It's so easy, right? Right, it, it is. I don't, I don't understand why <laughs> my sisters have not nailed that. Um, <laughs> but uh, I think, so it's hard for women to be vulnerable because it's less than perfect. Mm -hmm. You know? Um, so you, I don't. You mean women aren't wearing masks? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it's terrible because then the two collide. Mm -hmm. And you see in a lot of partnerships, I mean, I've seen it so much in my research, this contract we have where I'll stay smoking hot and awesome mm -hmm. and, you know, money and, and provider shame is such a real thing for men. Right. And, you know, you do this and this is our contract and we're both in straight jackets till we die. Yeah, and so... Like, How do we remove those jackets? Yeah. We just start getting real with each other. Mm. We just start being really honest. Um, and we see each other. You know, we really see each other. Yeah. Wow. I've got a few minutes left. So I'm going to be mindful of these questions. I know. I could ask you, Let's go now. Let's I, cut it. <laughs> I could ask you. I could talk to you for hours. Is there anything you feel ashamed of still? Oh, I have moments for sure. Like, mm -hmm. I will have moments of... But now I know. I mean, it's, we can't ever get rid of shame. What we can do is develop resilience to shame. So when it happens and it washes over, that warm wash that makes you feel small and not enough, mm -hmm. when that washes over me, rather than yelling at my kids or just decimating myself with hateful language, you know, and like, you're stupid or you're not, you know. Now when it washes over me, I'm like, okay, I'm in shame. Don't talk, text, or type. What happened? <laughs> So there are still, I mean, yeah. I still have triggers around it. Um, I still have triggers around it. And I still think it's probably the same motherhood trying to, you know, do everything and balance everything and be where I'm supposed to be. And that's still hard sometimes, yeah. you know. Um, What's the process that someone should take on when they feel shame, anger, rage? Well, shame is shame I can really help you with is first and foremost, talk to someone, talk to yourself like you talk to someone you love. So if you really, if you, if something happens and you're overwhelmed with shame, the first thing you need to do is get back on your emotional feet. Don't talk, text, or type to anyone because the first, one of the things we want to do is push that shit out on other people. I'm good at that. Yeah. I'm guilty of that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, yeah. <laughs> so just get into a dark, quiet place and then talk to yourself like you talk to someone you love. Yeah. Just be like, dude, it's okay. Like you screwed this up. You, what you said was super hurtful. You're going to have to circle back and clean that stuff up. 
but give mm -hmm. yourself a break here. Just like I would talk to Ellen or Charlie if they made a mistake. Yeah, yeah. Then reach out and talk to someone about what you're feeling. Shame cannot survive being spoken. So if you, if I call you and I'm like, oh my God, Lewis, I'm in a shame shitstorm. You're not gonna believe what happened. And you listen to me and you respond empathically or empathetically um, with something like, oh my God, I've been there. Or, oh God, I get it. I'm sorry, that sucks. Mm. Shame can't hold on because shame can't survive empathy. I 100% agree with that. I'll, quick example, for 25 years, I held on to the shame of being sexually abused by a man that I didn't know. And I was like, if anyone knew this about me, you know, my life was over. That's how shameful I felt, embarrassed and, yeah. um, you know, abused I felt from the experience. And when I finally had the courage to share it, it took me, you know, a couple of years to share it over and over many, many times. I don't feel shameful. Like I can talk about it openly and freely without feeling embarrassed, without feeling weak, soft, vulnerable, because, you know, I own the experience and it's not something I have to hold in and like ra react through rage because I can just share it and I can communicate as opposed to it's so brave. hold into this. Yeah. And um, I think whenever I f face anything that I'm scared to talk about now, I just say, well, how can I talk about it? How can I journal? I like to journal first. Oh, that's huge. So no one can shame me, right? Yeah, no one wants to no, feel that's that. that's huge. Yeah. And then start having conversations. And it, when we have ownership over that shame, I feel like it doesn't own us anymore. I mean, so... That's a perfect example. First of all, I'm, it's devastating that that happens. Mm -hmm. It happens to boys. One in six. Yeah, and they think that's an underestimate. Yeah. They think that that. No, one in six is what's known. Yeah, and yeah. they think it's probably double that yeah. because of our culture and inability of boys to speak safely, even yeah. to their own parents around yeah. it. I never told anyone. Right. My parents didn't know. Right. So, so here's the example exactly. You talk about it now. So, when, so two choices. You own your story. You get to write the ending. You don't own the story, the story owns you. Yeah. So then you talk about it now, so shame can't hold on. But then people see and hear you talking about it and it gives them permission to talk about it. That's mm -hmm. why shame cannot hold on to being spoken. So your courage to talk about that deflates shame. It takes mm -hmm. it out of the air. Yeah. It's like filtering poison out of water yeah. because you've got the courage to speak up. I mean, and that's how it works. And that's how all of this works, mm -hmm. is that we own our story or it owns us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Final two questions. I know I've got to hurry up, okay. Um, this is called The Three Truths. I ask everyone at the end of the, yep. the interviews, The Three Truths. You've written many books, you know, all new, number one New York Times bestsellers. Uh, let's imagine it's your last day many, many years from now. Yeah. You get to write the story when it's your last day yeah. on yeah. your own terms, yeah. right? You've written every book you've ever wanted to write. You've okay. said everything you've always wanted to say. You've done every video, interview, whatever it is, you've achieved anything you've set out to do. Okay. But for whatever reason, it's all erased and gone. So no one has access to any of this information. Okay. And you're there with all the people you care about. Mm -hmm. And you have a piece of paper and a pen. And you get to mm -hmm. write down three things you know to be true mm -hmm. about everything you've experienced in life. This is all people would have of your message mm -hmm. left behind. What would you say are the three truths for you? Steve, Ellen, and Charlie were my greatest true loves, for sure. Mm. After that, everything seems small. Um, love takes courage. Be brave, let yourself be seen. And don't wait for the grown-ups to get there. It's, that's, that's the myth. 
we don't know what we're doing. We're mm -hmm. just putting our best foot forward. So if you have an idea or an answer, go for it. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. That's cool. Yeah. Uh, before I ask the final question. Yeah. Uh, I want to make sure you guys go get the I'm book. I'm scared for the final question. I'm like, cut. <laughs> Let's go. The final Wrap question, it up. The final question's easy. Uh, but this is uh, Braving the Wilderness, the quest for true belonging and the courage to stand alone. Make sure you guys go get this book. It's going to be a game changer. Highly recommend it. I'll have it linked up everywhere on the site and below this video. Very powerful. You're an incredible writer. And uh, I just Thanks. know this is going to serve so many people who feel alone in the world of uncertainty. Um, and I want to acknowledge you, Brene, for being an incredible gift to the world Thank with you. all of your imperfections Thanks. and the beautifulness that you have within you. I think it takes so much courage to share these things the way you've been doing them for years, decades. You've been opening up Thank and you. talking about it and to bring it out to a public platform and continue to dive in deeper. I acknowledge you because the weight that it carries of listening to everyone else's pain as I've started to open up about mine, I just feel the weight of everyone now sharing with me. I can only imagine <laughs> it's a lot the weight that you get to carry yeah. and are you know, privileged to carry because of the work you're getting to do and the impact you have on so many people who, feel, who are suffering, who feel like there is no hope, there is no way out, who are stuck in all areas of their life. You give people such um, inspiration and tools and education on how to transform their life. So I acknowledge you for all the work that you do. Oh, thank you. You're welcome. You're welcome. Uh, this is the final question. That's it's, amazing. You're welcome. It's my thank pleasure. You. Yeah. Um, the final question is simple. It's what's your definition of greatness? To own your story and love yourself through that process. That's greatness to me. Appreciate you. Thank, thank you, you very much. Thank you. Thank you. That was awesome. There you have it, my friend. I hope you enjoyed this episode again. So powerful for me to sit down and connect with Brene and truly hear her share about all the lessons she's learned and the stories that she has. I think she's one of the greatest thought leaders of our time. Her books have had a huge impact on me and millions of other people. And if you haven't got her books, make sure to check them out. You can go to her website, follow her, Brene Brown, everywhere online. And make sure to share this with a friend. Tag a friend on social media to listen to this. And make sure to uh, tag me on your Instagram stories when you're listening and share this out to your friends as well. If this is your first time here, please subscribe to the podcast over on Apple Podcast and leave us a review. We'd love to hear how we can make this better and the content we can continue to bring to you to help you in achieving great things in your life. Again, we are launching our very first documentary. We did a full-length documentary with Hollywood filmmakers, make sure to go to greatness.com. Sign up to be notified of when we launch it. And also we'll be doing a live premiere in person in Los Angeles soon. So sign up there to be notified and we'll get you information as the documentary and the launch comes out. Again, you can watch the documentary for free. Just sign up to be notified at greatness.com. Again, Dr. Martin Luther King said, I decided to stick with love. Hate is too great a burden to bear. And Mila Braun said, in order to heal, we must forgive. And sometimes the person we must forgive is ourselves. I hope you are letting go of the shame that you've faced with your entire life because we can't get rid of it until we start to share it. 
That's the key. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Big thank you again to Brene and the repost of this episode from a couple years ago. I felt like you had to hear it. So many people hadn't listened to this yet. I want you to make sure you get access to this. Big thank you to her, her whole team. And as always, I love you so much. You know what time it is. It's time to go out there and do something great.